If you have a Bible, turn to James. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. Um, and we have been going through this series through uh, since September, and now we are coming to a close. We're just one week away from the end, and today we're talking on prayer. But before we do, I just want to share with you, um, because this is, this is one of my favorite topics. I love prayer, but there's a lot of there's a lot of cultural things around prayer. And, and there's a lot that I experienced growing up around prayer. I always loved being in times of prayer. Our, we would always find our parents praying together, and that was a, a neat thing, and seeing how they modeled that for us. And I think prayer is so important, but yet sometimes so misunderstood or underutilized. And especially for a lot of us, if mom and dad didn't pray, then chances are you don't pray. And not because you don't care about prayer, but you've, you haven't seen that modeled. And so, you know, it's kind of like that saying, more is caught than taught. And if you haven't caught that, you don't know how to duplicate that. And I know for me growing up, there were all kinds of things that I caught, both good and bad. I mean, when I was about nine years old in the church we grew up in, I remember being in a prayer gathering and hearing all of these languages that didn't make sense, and I was sure of, of the fact that they were not languages of other countries, but speaking in tongues, and speaking in tongues in of itself, I don't believe is bad, but in, in, it has to be in the proper biblical context. And so I just remember this woman looking down at me as an eight-year-old boy and saying, okay, David, it's your turn to speak in tongues. And that pressure that put upon me as an eight-year-old boy and how much concern that put. And man, I'm not speaking in a language where God approves of me. And that gave a whole whacked up understanding of what was not gospel living. And then later, I remember in my later teen years at Christ the King in Bellingham spent 10 hours in a prayer time with our church and got to see over 100 people over that 10-hour period. It was the most incredible experience ever. Some of it was in silence. Some of it was in reading scripture. Some of it was in singing songs together and hearing others' prayers where I was catching things. It wasn't just a class where they were teaching. It was a time in a room lit like this, but smaller where we were together praying and just hearing the hearts of God's people, and it was incredible. And then another time where there was almost like a, a revival service for the youth at this one group. And I remember gathering in, in an upper room with, a, with about 15 leaders from a different organization. And uh, they asked me, one of the people on the band, would you pray for us? And I uh, no more said, dear Lord, did people start barking and speaking in tongues and, and, and things that I had never heard before that just made me uncomfortable and didn't want to make me lean into prayer, but, but remove myself because that didn't seem healthy. And, and then also, I kind of grew up a, in a family environment. I don't know if this is you, but for me, there was kind of that time when, when there was drama and out of that religious season that my family was in, I think we'd all admit as the Lawlers that if you were in that circle and, and there was tension and there was strife and there was division that, that mom or somebody would just say, can we just pray about it? And there would be no reconciliation, but prayer would just be this scapegoat. And so I think we would all agree that prayer is vital, 
No one denies that. But all of us have these different ways, these different experiences that we come out of, some of which is not prayer that we see in the Bible, but prayer that we see of just a group led by emotion, led by more cultural response. And so I think prayer becomes difficult for us in the balance of it, understanding the importance of it. And so it really presents us with this uncomfortable tension but I think it's far more often because we don't know why we pray than how we pray. Even the disciples went to Jesus and said, how do, we, how do we pray? And he says, here's, here's how. And he gave them the Lord's prayer and he showed them, here's why you pray, here's how, and he gave them that answer. And during one of the most influential sermons preached on American soil by a, name, a man named Jonathan Edwards. He preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's a sermon that when you just hear that sentence, you hear that title and you hear those words, a lot of people think that it's just a sermon where he's just gonna really make people feel awful, but really Jonathan Edwards genuinely really preached from a place of, of love from a place of care. And it, said, it was said that Jonathan Edwards was not a man who was perfect in speech and he would grab his notes and he had them so close to his face that the church could not see his face. They could only see the notes in front of him. And as he preached this, there was just repentance. They, they were cut to the heart. And, and, and in this time, what developed out of there that's not often spoke of from this sermon is a group of people that grabbed this, the, the need for repentance, the need to change and pursue God as this group of people began to pursue being a church of prayer. And out of that, they started caring for the needs in their community. They spent a whole evening in prayer, days sometimes in prayer. And from that sermon that he preached, this group really chose to live for God and be a church of prayer. And so one of the most popular quotes from Jonathan Edwards reminds me of, of this need for us to be a church of prayer where he says, resolution one, I will live for God. And resolution two, if no one else does, I will. And so as we look at our text this morning in James chapter five, what James is really calling the church to is to be a church of prayer, not defined by culture or, or our past experiences, but that we would look at it scripturally, intentionally, and in our relationship with God where we would become a church that prays, not sometimes, not kind of or often, but always. And so in James chapter five, we're gonna start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain 
and the earth bore its fruit. Now see in these few short verses, what James is kind of repeating is that word prayer or pray. And James was really writing to this church as we looked at to call them to view and approach prayer different. For them to really be intentional with it in, in that in everything they do and, and how they prayed and how they went about their living, that they would be faithful because how we pray matters. How we pray matters. And, and what we see in our text from James is that he's calling the believers to pray in, in three specific ways through faithful prayer. Because our faith in God is our complete trust and our confidence and belief in him. Not ourselves, but in him. And so it is by that faith that we pray. And James says that faithful prayer practices mutual confession. Faithful prayer practices mutual confession. James says in verse 16, by our confession of sins to one another that we may be healed. And so he gives us several key elements, not to just grab the more spiritual, that's not what he's after by saying, grab the elders of the church, but to gather the church together so they're not segregated, they're not isolated, but together in faithful community. I mean, think back to when we talked, I think it was about in week three, where we talked about leaders and teachers, how they go before, not above. That's a clear sign of, of not a, a teacher living in, in, in light of, of the calling of being a godly leader because godly leaders go before. They don't go above. There isn't a hierarchy there. There's a responsibility there, but not a hierarchy. And those leaders go before. And so confession amongst us together is where in private prayer or, or in the presence of other believers, it, it's honoring Christ and it heals us. There's healing that takes place. So whenever we bring our sins to one another, whenever we bring our stuff that we're struggling with, these things become concrete. They become, all of its ugliness, all of its burdensome ways are not hidden anymore. They become ever before us for an opportunity of freedom. John Calvin said, it is fitting that by the confession of our own wretchedness, we show forth the goodness and mercy of our God among ourselves and before the whole world. See, what James is calling the church to here is to live in freedom by bringing to light the sin that was really lingering in the darkness. Whatever sin is lingering in our lives, because whatever we try to control, whatever that sin that we're trying to control, what we're trying to maintain, what we're trying to hold on to is actually controlling us in a toxic way. See, James talks about the one suffering with physical illness, but he's also talking about the need for healing with those with spiritual sickness. And that comes when we're just grabbing hold of things, trying to grip tightly to things in our lives that we don't want to come into the light. But the light that Christ provides exposes these things. We talked about this in our series of 1 John. We talked about how light does three things, that it exposes darkness, it reveals what is in front, and it helps direct us where to walk to. And so the question, church, for you is, what do you have lingering in the darkness? 
What's lingering in the darkness of your own life that maybe you're not addressing? Maybe for you, you don't even know how to address that. But I think as we open up the doors to the closet where some things need to be addressed, I think what we often tend to do is, is more rearrange all of the clutter rather than remove it because we try to do that on our own. But that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. We see in Romans 8 verse 26 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so as we bring that stuff by the leading of the Holy Spirit working in us, the light of Christ really exposes the darkness. So the sin in our life that's separating us from our relationship from God, separating us from relationships with others, that's really exposing that darkness and bringing it to light. That light reveals what's in front of us that the thing that needs to change, that the areas where we need to grow then can take place because we understand fully, here's what's in front of me. God has revealed through his light in Christ what's in front of me. This is why I constantly am going back to Psalm 139, the ending two verses where the psalmist cries out, search me and know me. See if there, there's anything offensive See if there's anything in me that offends you and and point me in the way everlasting. Point out in me. Reveal to me what's in front of me. What is keeping me from confessing this? And then what light does, the light that only comes from Christ, is that it helps direct us how and where to walk to. And see, church, this is where prayer becomes vital for us as believers where we seek the Holy Spirit and we say, help me, help me. Help me to know where to walk, how to walk into these areas of reconciliation that need reconciliation. Help me to walk into these areas away from what I've been walking in. So help me. And I think far often than not, church, we're, we're afraid of confession and I think sometimes the, the reason is that there's, there's some things there, but what would people say? What would they believe if they knew this is what I was dealing with, if this is what I was sinning in? And, and this is where we often just approach it with shame. And, and so out of that, we, we isolate. But James is saying, don't isolate, don't segregate, have genuine confession, not to tally up all that's wrong with you, but but to just leave it open in genuine confession. Here's what's going on with me so that we not continue to walk in it and just tally it up. So the faithful prayer, James says, is the one that practices mutual confession. And then he also tells us that faithful prayer is powerful in intercession, And put simply, intercession is the act of praying on behalf of others. And so James reminds us that there is much to pray for, the physical needs, the spiritual needs, the the emotional needs, but there's no special class there that those who are identified as intercessors. He says, call for the elders, not because they have this special method of prayer, but because they're called to go before you, to pray for you. And so scripture, what we see throughout the whole Bible is that scripture calls us all to pray for others. And we see this model of intercessory prayer in Daniel chapter nine. 
when Daniel goes before the Lord and he prays for the people. And in verses four through seven, we get a picture of this prayer. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Not your people have sinned. We together have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the man of Judea, of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Now, if you continue reading through Daniel 9, you just continue to hear this prayer where it's, it's not a self-seeking prayer, but, but it's a selfless prayer and a desire of Daniel to go before the people to God. And so through this, through, throughout this passage, we see really six things of, of someone who would be in intercessory prayer that we learned from, from Daniel. That in verse two, he talks about the response to the word. In verses three and four, we really see the characterized by fervency and self-denial, that it's, it's really not about Daniel, but it's about showing that God is awesome, that he is the one who needs to be focused on and praised. And in verse five, he identifies unselfishly with God's people. Not, not putting aside, it's, it's your people, so I guess I'll come before you and, and, and talk to you about all the stuff they're doing, but saying, God, here, we have all sinned. It's all of us together and him going before. We see in verses five through 15 that, that Daniel strengthened by this confession, by this bringing this to light before God. And, and throughout this chapter in verses four, seven, nine, and 15, it really shows a dependent, a dependence on God's character. Not, not on Daniel's, but on God's. That Daniel as an intercessor is not saying, here's all the characteristics of why I should pray, but God, I seek your character. That, that I align myself with you and, and who you are and what your character is. And then in verse 19, 16 through 19, we see that he has it as his goal, not to bring glory to himself. Look how I would pray, but he would bring glory to God. And so like Daniel, we are to come to God interceding on behalf of others in a, in a heartbroken way, in a repentant attitude. Not, not a pointing of, sp of fingers spiritually. God, God here's, here's why I'm coming before you because I have very eloquent words, so I'm gonna intercede for those who are just wretched, but, but heartbroken. God, we are wretched. We desire to have repentant hearts. God, forgive all of us, me included. And I think this person who would intercede recognizes that the power of prayer is not in their words, but in the one that they're praying to. That, that they're not trying to seek out their own power in prayer, but seeking God who has the power. And so we, we don't see from Daniel where he prays and saying, I, I have the right to demand this out of you, God. 
because I'm the one of, uh, who you are calling special or, or I'm the chosen intercessor. But what we see is him coming before, going before God's people saying, I'm a sinner. And in effect, I, I don't have any right to demand anything. God, bring us back to you. God, lead us to you. I think what this shows is that true inter- intercessory prayer really seeks not only to know God's will and, and see it fulfilled, but to see it fulfilled whether or not it benefits us. That's the heart of the, the person interceding for others. It, it's regardless if it benefits us and regardless of what it costs us. Because if you know the story of Daniel or if you don't know the story of Daniel, there's some cost there throughout his life. There's some areas where he meets opposition. But in the midst of that, true intercessory prayer that we see from Daniel is that he seeks God's glory, not his own. And so the person who's really seeking out intercessory prayer to go before God's church, to go before and prayerfully care for others is not seeking out their own glory. It is not seeking out their own gain, but to bring glory to God. And this is what we see James tell us also is that faithful prayer gives God the glory. Faithful prayer gives God the glory. And James references a righteous person and he talks about Elijah whose prayer had great power. And this is a person who is committed to doing the will of God and to cultivating a right relationship with him. So James is really saying that our our praying is is to be effectual and fervent. And these two words are really translated of a word that means to display one's activity, to put forth power, not, not in ourselves, but the power of God. And so it simply means that we're to pray in faith, in confidence of our Lord, and then put legs on our prayers for the, for the glory of God. Because we have a tendency to ask and then sit and wait. A tendency to just sit and wait just for the answer. A tendency to sit and hope for what we would have the outcome be. But I think in our prayer lives, what God really desires is that we seek him that we press into him. And then when we get up and we move in the midst of waiting, it's not in the answer that we're trying to move towards, but in him, towards him, through him, that we're not trying to get our own game, but through that, we're bringing glory to God. God, whatever the answer is, regardless if you ever answer this, I will continue to live for you. I will continue to seek you. I will continue to praise you. And over and over again in the New Testament, we see this development of prayer. We see the apostles learning to pray and the church growing in their prayer life. And something that we see develop is that prayer is not only important to the church, but it's difficult. I mean, Paul says continually, he says, labor with me in prayer, work with me in prayer. So it's almost as if the apostles are acknowledging, listen, it's not going to come easy for you and I. It's not going to be something that's always gonna be simple. But he says, labor with me in it. Work with me in it. Sweat with me in it. Fight for a prayer life with me. In Ephesians 6, 18, he says, pray at all times. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. 
See, he's continually reminding the believers, never stop praying. Never stop seeking. Always be seeking the Lord. We see this in the Old Testament. I love this verse in Isaiah 62, verse six and seven. It says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Take no rest and give him, the Lord, no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. See, here's the thing about the God that we serve and the God that we love. God loves being bothered by his children. God loves being bothered by his kids. There, there's no point where we come before him and he wants nothing to do with us genuinely and repentantly seeking him. And so what he is saying to us, I believe often God is just desiring that we would give him no rest in this. Don't stop. Don't stop asking him, pursuing him, petitioning him until we position ourselves before that. Just continuing in that. So then what that means for us in in every season, when it's tough, we pray. When we're just riddled with guilt and struggling in every area of our life, we pray. At the end of our rope, at at our deepest struggle or our greatest joy, we pray. And so for us to be faithful in our life of prayer, to genuinely and endlessly pray and be faithful followers of Christ, It needs to not be for our own gain, but that we would confess, that we would intercede, and we would bring glory to God in our faithful prayer lives. So as we come to a close this morning, church, let me ask you this. For you to ask, for all of us to ask ourselves this question, am I seeking the Lord? And not perfectly, not for you to think of a a list of what that would perfectly look like, but faithfully for us all to look at that and ask, am I seeking the Lord? Let's pray.